Ernest, what's up? Y'all know I'm big on doing your research, sharing your research, and giving credit to where you found the research. But I always get asked the same question. Where do I start with the research? And the answer is easy. It's our sponsor, Yahoo Finance. Whether I'm tracking the daily movement of my favorite companies, doing technical analysis with their easy-to-use charting platform, or checking balance sheets, Yahoo Finance makes something very complex simplified. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or you're looking for extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. You could actually securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors. And it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You heard me, yahoofinance.com. Don't wait, don't hesitate. I use it. You should go over and start using it now. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, guys, welcome back. So we have a very special addition today. Yeah. yeah. Um, very special guests, very special topics. It's just very special all the way around. So, all right, we're going to get this started. But before we get it started, first, we got to give a shout out to the DR. Did you know that we was uh, number two in DR for business podcast? I did not know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. We have a very strong following That's in crazy. DR. Some of our best guests, Lord of the Slums, my man Fernando, shout out to, yep. shout out to Caesar. And um, shout out to everybody in Dykeman. Yeah. It's like a second home for us. They show us so much love out wow. there. It, it was the first place when we, we stepped out the car, somebody was like, yo, Troy, Rashad. And we were like, oh, they know us out here. Yeah. yeah. This is great. Shout out to Dykeman. Shout out to the tournament specifically. Um, shout out to Miguel, Chris, Kenny, uh, Mikey, Dimalo. Yeah, Kiki, what up? <laughs> sure. Kiki, what up? Kev. And um, shout out to Katrina Castro. She's a huge actress in DR, and she's a big fan of the podcast, too. So mm -hmm. the reason why I say that is that our guest, none other than John Henry, yes, sir. is uh, you're Dominican, right? Yes, I 100%, am. 100%, right? Yes, I am. From the Heights. From the Heights. Yeah. 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 Might as well. Be, that's pretty much Dominican Republic. Right? <laughs> <laughs> a little yeah. DR. A little yeah. DR. Yeah, is a yeah, fact. Yeah. For those who don't know, yes. So, yeah. so if, if you don't know John, I'll give you a brief introduction. Um, he's the man, the myth, the legend. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, Forbes, 30 under 30, his whole team actually made that. I just, I just realized that. Yep. Um, he sold his first company when he was 21 for a million dollars. He uh, started uh, CoFund Harlem. He um, owned 17 apartments and two buildings in, in Pennsylvania. Yep. And he has a venture capital firm. This is something I'm really interested in. He has a venture capital firm. And he's 26? 26. 26 years old. 26 years old. So um, that's a lot. That's a lot, man. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot. So yes, can we get your story? Because it's, it's, I, I did some reading, and it's, it's crazy. So you started at 18. You were a doorman, right? Yes, that is correct. Yep. Um, so first off, just shout out to you guys, man. Thank nah, you. I appreciate you, bro. Appreciate you. Of course, of course. Behind the camera too. Yeah, I never yeah. forget behind the camera. Nah, for sure. Because <laughs> uh, we've been making, we've been wanting this to pop off for a minute, and I've been getting tagged on your guys' posts <laughs> like Yo, they, crazy. <laughs> and not only just tagged, but DM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, we, I have my. We, people. we got a. I think we're gonna call them the earners. Like every Beyonce has oh, a cool, beehive. Cool, cool. We're gonna yeah, call yeah, them the yeah. earners. I've been looking for a little thing like think, that too. Yeah, we gonna. So shout out to my man Kenny in Detroit. He was like, "Yo, Troy, y'all gotta call them the earners." Earners. So right. when the earners come to, to your page, yep. they come with a, they with a come mission. They come hard, man. <laughs> and, um, and then I had a homegirl who was like, yo, I'm going to put you guys in touch. And we ended up in touch. Oh, so dope, I'm, glad, I'm glad this went down. Um, dope, dope. So, yeah. So there's that because I know it's not, it's not easy to build a community. And you guys stay very consistent. And it's very difficult to remain consistent, whether it's original content and or curation. Like your guys' curation is a very specific point of view. Um, so as a fellow content creator, um, I don't take that for granted. So thank you guys. I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you. Yeah, no appreciate doubt. That. Um, so yeah, man, I mean, my story is what it is that's out there is well documented. Um, and all that shit is true. You know, just like kid from the Heights, you know, grew up in a very poor family. Um, we grew up below the poverty line. Son of Dominican immigrants. Two Dominican immigrants. Yeah. So both of my parents combined didn't make 30,000 a year. Um, and there were six of, so I'm the youngest of four. So four kids plus two parents, six of us, you know, living just like pretty much everyone else in the Heights in New York in the nineties in a little uh, one bedroom apartment. And my pops put up a little fake wall you know, <laughs> to make a bedroom. Yeah, everybody know room. that curtain wall, man. Yep. And, <laughs> and so my, my sister had a full bed. My oldest brother had the top bunk and I actually split the bottom bunk with my brother closest to me in age so it's not even like we had a bunk bed we split the bottom bunk <laughs> um, it sounds like a ghost face run right yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which, which like i guess these days sounds like oh my god you know but it's just it is what it is um and yeah man that was just a formative dna um i think one big blessing that i had was growing up in a two-parent household despite you know a lot of adverse new york in the 90s is just very crazy mm -hmm. um a lot of shit popping off i had an oldest brother whom was of age when, when when my parents moved to the States. Okay. Mm. So he was, you know, 13, 14, 15. So, you know, my parents, I feel like good, like Kendrick, like good kid, Mad City. Mm -hmm. Definitely Mad City. But my mom's, who was, who was already like dealing with the effects of watching after my oldest siblings, like made sure that, you know, we were busy or some shit, you know, or stayed in. We, we only, you know, we could play just in the lobby, you know, when we were <laughs> youngest. Um, and uh, yeah, so anyway, so that was the early DNA, man. And then you know, I moved to we moved to Florida after 9/11. Um, also, one thing that I don't talk about that often, but there we we there was an armed burglary in our home. Okay, it's a complete mistake, you know. But some cats like broke into our crib, and yeah, you know, there were eight guys that were all armed, tied us all up, except oh, wow. for me because they didn't expect two people to be in the bottom bunk, mm. and I was it was crazy kind of stuff. Um, 
um, and just like that couple with 9-11, my folks were like, yeah, we're not going to do this. Get out of you New know? York. So we yeah. moved to Florida, spent some time there. Um, my mom worked as a custodian in an affluent neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so one of the perks that you get um, is that your kids can go to that school district whether or not you live in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so that was a very big blessing because it was like a Trojan horse got to go to this school, this high, specifically high school, where it's just a lot of affluent kids. And for the first time, we were like, we were broke alone. Like I was the only broke kid. Mm. It's one thing when everyone's broke. Is one. Yeah. It's another thing when like your friends have enormous homes and getting whips at age of sixteen and all this kind of stuff. So that kind of put a chip on my shoulder in an interesting way. And I guess just to speed it up, I actually fell in love with music. Um, at that point in time, I was damn near Rasta. I had grown out my locks. <laughs> you know, choice to making. That's a fact. Yeah. I, oh, really? Yeah, no yeah, worries. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, smoked a little too much weed <laughs> and like was tie dyeing my own shirts and shit. And, like, um, picked up a guitar. Wait, what, you, a rig- what, what are you listening to though? Uh, oh, just like roots, like real, real roots, mm. like Barrington Levy. Levy oh, you was in like, entrenched. Ziggy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, Ziggy? yeah. Ziggy's okay. I like Damian Moore. Okay. Um, you know, Bob. Paris Hammond. Uh, as well, Steel Pulse, like Roots, Roots. Yeah, I actually joined a Roots reggae band. It was a whole Rastafarian family. It was a whole like just, I don't really, <laughs> it was the whole thing. Um, but I pursued. I fell in love with the instrument, and then through reggae, discover blues uh, and reggae, which I love. Um, it's but it's very static as a music. It's boom, He's having a moment, and it sits in the pocket. And then I discover blues. It progresses a little more, and then I discovered jazz. Um, and at that point I cut my hair and I was like, I was playing eight hours a day, every mm. day. You no, know, it was not like a casual thing. I was very committed to the music and I actually moved back to the city to pursue music. I wanted a scholarship. I came here for that. And then, you know, coming back to the city as a young adult and all the stimuli that you have and all the drive, you could really apply towards anything. Um, and so I got a job as a doorman and that kind of started off my whole business journey. Yeah. So the, the doorman situation, uh, uh, you said that. You a lot of residents, wealthy residents, were coming in and out, and you decided that hey, this is a chance here, and one of them changed your trajectory forever. Forever, um, that's exactly right. Um, the special thing about living in a big city is the proximity. There's a lot of power in proximity, and like you just you know being exposed to different life paths, and that can come in the form of anything. For me, it happened to come in the form of working the desk. Mm. Um, and just seeing, I first had Dormand on Wall Street, 75 Wall Street, which is a residential building. Mm-hmm. And like, I got exposed to, you know, tr- like the most affluent people in the country. But that never felt attainable to me because it, it was like, mm-hmm. oh, white money. I then later got the chance to Dormand in Brooklyn. And who was there in that building? A lot of different people with a lot of different life paths. For instance, uh, some folks that come to mind, notable people. The founders of Rap Genius. Yeah, that's what yeah, you said. Yeah, 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 genius. Yeah. Um, crazy, like, few white boys, like, yo, what up? You know, um, <laughs> them. Uh, pastor Carl Lentz, mega pastor of Hillsong. Okay. Um, mega pastor now, yeah. like, globally known. Um, there were directors. There was the founder of Voxy, this, this cool startup, Christina Ricci, this actress. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, there was uh, this guy named Ivan Green, a professional rock climber, professional dating coaches. I mean, every kind of career you can think of. Yeah, like some motherfucker got paid 30 Gs per client to, to show losers how to pick up girls. Mm. Like, <laughs> losers. And, and so, yeah, at some point, I, I you know, that kind of sustained proximity yeah. showed me that 
you can make a living doing exactly what you so do. So like as people are coming in, you're just having casual conversation and, and we're just passing and like this guy, I like yeah, this kid. Yeah, for sure. Just being interested, you know, like, you know, there were doormen who had been there for years who were sleeping on, you know, the power of. Now, I, you know, what? I'm glad we're having this conversation because it's something that a lot of times people take for granted, the power of networking. And um, like speaking of Florida, I used to play basketball. So I went to IMG Academy. I don't know if you're into sports, but it's a real big um, sports academy in Florida. And one of my biggest regrets is that when I was there, like literally there was so many people that was there, like John McEnroe's son, Maria Sharapova, like all these different kids. And it's like every, like a lot of these people came from very wealthy families or they, they did extremely good things. And I was kind of like just in my vibe, just, you know, sheltered off just people that played basketball. But I yeah. wish that I would have, it was right in my fingertips, right? And it's like a lot of times people don't fully understand, like you were in the building and you networked. You right. wasn't like their peers, but that didn't stop you from actually networking, making relationships. Yeah, yeah and and I just you know want to bring a little color to the word networking because that to me it's got a a fake connotation of like networking, like you're looking for something out of someone. And that was just never my whole. That was never my thing. Mm-hmm. I was never like, yo, I'm gonna meet with this resident because it was just like I'm just interested in you as a person, right? Mm-hmm. You like, become part of their daily life. Like I see you every day for sure. Right? Like we and have like, we have. Oh, how's your kid? Like, right. Just like you watch their kids grow. You watch them get a pet. You watch all these things happen. And there's something special about when you connect with someone with no expectations in mind, and like that's what builds to me builds real depth and allows you to transcend beyond the networking bucket, mm-hmm. and then you develop a real relationship. And I'm still friends, actual friends, yeah, with a lot of these people, man. And it's crazy because you're right. We weren't peers at that time. Some, you know, and allow a lot of us are peers for real. And <laughs> right. it's just, they still look at me and like, damn, that's crazy. Cause yeah, we used to come on. They, they, <laughs> used to, they seen the cut. Start from the bottom. the door for me. So, all right. So how'd you get the cleaning business though? All right. So the cleaning business, and I'll run through this quick cause this is well documented. And I suspect that maybe some of the folks listening might have heard this a uh, bit of this, but yeah, man, there was one resident in particular. Uh, his name is Hugo. Shout out to Hugo. Love him like a brother. And um, yeah, he comes from from where I come from, you know, different neighborhood, Brooklyn. But, you know, just from being poor and he was like, yo, the fuck you doing, bro? Like, (laughs) like, you know, at that time. So I was making fourteen dollars an hour and I was in a suit and in the AC and like that in and of itself. You know, my my pops was paid 40 cents a garment, you know, so like damn near sweatshop conditions. And so, like, that was a notable step up, and it was enough for me to, I made maybe 900 bucks every two weeks. So it was enough for me to help the family out, but, like, he just quickly let me know, man, you don't got to settle for being a doorman. You could have your own doorman, mm. you know, and he saw my earnestness, so he put me up to something. And um, there were actually a number of residents who were trying to put me onto different hustles, but eventually you got to find the vehicle that feels right for you. Mm-hmm. You know, some lady tried to put me on to editing videos, making 500 bucks a video, like if that was in my DNA, I could have done that. Right. But I ended up resonating with this approach. Hugo, who had a franchise of dry cleaner, he has like maybe he had like at that time, you know, dozens of dry cleaners. And what I didn't know is that the facility is the most expensive part. And then most of the dry cleaners that you guys go to um, are actual they're drop shops. So let's talk about that because I know you've probably told the story before, but on EYL we like get deep into. It. So these are kind of businesses that 
you see, you use every day, but I've never heard anybody explain the business model of how a dry cleaner makes money. So right. you had a successful dry cleaning business. How, you, you don't even have a business background. That's interesting as well. How do you know how to run a business and how do you, like, how is that profitable? Because at one point you said you was making like a hundred, like, well, the, the revenue was like a hundred thousand a month, right? Yeah, yeah. How, how? How is that possible? Yeah, so you don't, you don't need a business background. You just, <laughs> you just gotta be, you gotta be able to make a transaction happen. And that's really at the essence of the business, mm -hmm. of any business, is transactions and people. Um, and so if, you know, a lot of people don't get off the ground because the weight of their expectations crushes, you know, the seed of the thing. Because you place all these expectations, yo, I need this shit to be a full-blown business. Yeah. No, motherfucker, you don't. Like, make a sale. You know, one, you know? and so Hugo showed me um, that, so this is the way the dry cleaning model works is like there's a facility and that is the expensive part because these machines cost a lot of money and dry cleaning uses something called perk, which um, it, your clothes do get wet. So dry cleaning is like a false pretense, but it gets wet with a solvent a chemical of sorts solution called perk. Um, and so anyway, that stuff has to be handled in a very specific way and whatever. So the facilities are, are typically expensive. However, most dry cleaners that people interface with are actual what the, what they call drop shops. So it's just a small retail facility, you know, like might be four or five hundred square feet, where customers go, and it's, and it's typically in a residential neighborhood. And customers go and they drop off their garments. Like if you know, if I were to drop this off, this blazer would cost me like nine bucks, and my pants and whatever. And then what those retail shops do is they actually outsource them to the facility, mm. Mm. and then you typically pay on a per piece basis. So for me, Hugo gave me wholesale pricing without me having wholesale volume, i.e. this blazer as a regular customer would cost maybe $9 to dry clean. Hugo was doing it for me for two bucks. That's a great margin. Mm -hmm. Now, did you, did you have a facility or are you doing Well, it? so Hugo did. Hugo okay. was a facility. So Hugo was like, yo, I can't really help plug. you out in that much, but I can give you access to a facility. Okay. I was like, perfect. That's all I need. Right. So my job, th th that's why I was like, there was no silver spoon or anything. My job was, he was like, all right, bet you have that. Go make something happen. Good luck with it. That's it. Yeah. See you later. Yeah. <laughs> so then, you know, I took the same suit that I was doormanning in and made some cheap business cards and, a, and a, some fucking flyers. And I called the giant recleaners. It was not that original, you know, <laughs> and I just went to, I was wa walking around Harlem and just knocking on door literally and getting to know the doorman and saying yo i know you're the key to the building because i'm a doorman too right and like getting them to refer their residents to me anytime they had an issue or whatever and i would break them off on the low and i remember when i got my first call from a lady you know and i actually had gone to at&t and paid them 200 bucks to get a 212 cell phone number so they thought they were calling a real shop and I was having lunch with my parents and I stepped out. She was like, hi, yeah. I was like, yes. She was like, I'd like to place an order. I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> she, you know, she gave me her address. I took the subway. I had no whip at the time, took the subway. You know, she opened the door and I was expecting, you know, I don't know what I was expecting, like to be grilled or something. And she, she didn't even know I was John Henry. She just thought I was the delivery guy. She's like, well, here you go. So it's like an on-demand service. Yep. She yeah. called, I went, I picked it up. I took it to the facility where Hugo was at. Yeah on foot via train he cleaned it the next day i went back to bushwick where he was grabbed it went all the way up to harlem 
delivered it. And then when I delivered it, she gave me 17 bucks. And like, yes, I traveled three or four hours total <laughs> to make $17. But those $17 changed my life yeah. because it was $17 from my own system. Yeah. And $1 from your own system is worth $1,000 from another man's. That's powerful. And also, you know what I like about that story is that it's, it's a lot of creativity in that. If you watch, you ever watch Casino? No. Like, <laughs> you gotta watch Casino, but He's only 26. In, in Casino, <laughs> Sam Rothstein, who do you say the most important people in Vegas was, Troy? The dealers? Nope. The 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 people at the table. The valet parkers. Oh yes, yes, they know everybody. They know everybody. That's so true. Yes, the, yes. the thing I like, the average person, if I'm starting a cleaning business, I'm going door to door. Like, but think how much you went to the doorman mm -hmm. because they know everybody. Mm -hmm. You was already a doorman yourself. So instead of having to knock on, you probably couldn't get in the building anyway, but instead of For trying sure. to knock on 300 doors and people was like, who are you? You just, you cut the middleman out. Yep. You went straight to the, the person that speaks to everybody on a day-to-day basis. Exactly. You gave them an incentive because you're giving them some, some money for yep. every person that they referred. It's actually a brilliant system. See, things like that is like, who thinks about stuff like that? Well, like, you know what I, mean? I mean, you're in the industry, so you know. Yeah, you know right. I mean? like, and and I can't, benefit. I can't take credit for having some brilliant idea to your point it was really just that's what i knew yeah <laughs> and so like like some people hear this and want to replicate my path but that was just what i knew so what do you know yeah well we got to give you credit though right because right. there are 400 to a thousand people who are doing the same job who didn't have that sure you see what i'm saying sure so i'll take credit for having the drive right but i can't take credit for having some kind of brilliance it was just like you know the connection with the doorman ran deeper than the incentive because at some point you stop even breaking them off. They do it because they Just develop. They rock with you yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. like that, man, people underestimate this shit, man. Like business is a lot more the art of connecting with people than it is the art of making numbers. Later, the numbers, you know, you'll yield, you'll make some money mm -hmm. as a result of connecting with people, in my opinion. So you, you scaled it to 100000 a month? Yeah, we grew, man. We were, then there was no way we would get to that volume just doing little individual residents. There was another resident of the build, that same building. I was planning to quit. You know, I was waiting for December 25th, you know, Christmas. Yeah. I was the building's favorite, so I was maybe going to make like four or five G's. Um, and that was enough, man. I was going to quit and, and get all my shit. And I actually got fired because, you know, entrepreneurs don't make good employees. At that point, they were hitting me with conflict of interest. You know, they were like, yo, he's trying to convert residents to customers. <laughs> you know, I, that wasn't true. But like, you know, when they want to give you the can, like yeah, they they'll find great. a way. Yeah, oh, they'll, they'll definitely way. find a way. Yeah. Um, so they found a way and they fired me in December. So I was really distraught, man. I thought that my shit was over. Um, and then I got a call from a seed that I've been planting for a minute. It was, um, you know, one of this resident introduced me to the film industry. Mm -hmm. Wardrobe supervisor for the Wolf of Wall Street. Which did end up becoming the first movie I ever did. Um, you, so you did the so you became the cleaning service for all the wardrobe for the film. If you've ever seen The Wolf of Wall Street, oh, we love that movie. Every single piece of wardrobe, from the principal actor Leonardo to the extras in the stockbroker scenes, like <laughs> all that shit is money. And one thing people don't know is that production companies um, they actually, for the most part, rent garments unless they are very specific pieces. And they're, they're custom made. For the most part, they're rented. And the cool thing about when they're rented is that they have to return the garments dry cleaned. Mm. And so they, you know, at this point, the dry clean industry didn't have anyone. 
that was willing to go and pick shit up at three in the morning. And so when a multi-million dollar production has no choice but to go with an 18-year-old kid who dropped out of college and had no business experience, that tells you they have an actual need. <laughs> yeah. You know, so we met and like I didn't get the business right away. Months passed. And then he called me. He was like, yo, you're in luck because I got no other option. You know, he's like, you want to come grab this shit? And I was like, yeah. And I actually went to pick up my first load of laundry. And when you're in the laundry business and you see big sacks of laundry, you don't see fucking sacks of clothes. You see giant money bags. <laughs> Literally, like, I'm yeah, just yeah, like, oh, yeah. my God. There was, like, maybe five or six big-ass bags. And um, <laughs> and I didn't have a whip, man. And they were like, yo, you want us to that help That was going to be my next thing. Like, they they were like, it? yo, you want us to help you carry this house? I was like, no, 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 no. I got the van right around the corner. And I actually brought the sack one by one and left them around the oh, corner. Shit. And then when I was sure they wasn't looking, I went and I lugged them up the A train to my uh, You put them on the train? I put them on the train. Damn. All six. Wow. So, six, so six bags. <laughs> <laughs> when you watch Wolf of Wall Street, all them shits were dragged through the uptown train, Damn, bro. Damn, wow. the A train's the worst, Literally, too, man. Literally, yo. Just, just, just curiosity. Big bags, bro. Big what, what, what type of revenue <laughs> comes from that type of cleaning? So, so I must have made, picture like I that. must have made on that order something like, uh, Maybe two G's or something like that. Um, and then the margin works out to you net like damn near 70 or 65 percent um, because you pay on a per piece basis and all this other stuff. But the point is, here I was making 900 bucks every two weeks mm -hmm. and I just made two G's in an order. Now, not every order I knew at that point, not every order was going to be two G's, but you know, in theory, that if you can hit that, then you can hit it again. And so, like, that was a point with which, like, I kind of broke. I mean, really, the $17 order was what let me know, okay, yeah. it's the measure of your effort. But that one let me know, all right, there's some real money to be made. And then, long story short, we did a great job with that. I did not bring that one to Hugo, respectfully. I actually brought it to my father, whom I mentioned was a presser growing up, mm -hmm. and that's how he put us through. And it makes me cry sometimes when I think about it, man, because, you know, I was embarrassed about my father's profession growing up. Mm -hmm. And that is the same thing that ended up, I was able to bring it. And my father's actually a master presser. Mm. He's not like an, like he's a master presser, highly sought out. And he pressed these garments very beautifully. I brought him back. And then David Davenport, he gave me what's called the wrap, which is the final order of the entire movie when they clean every garment. Mm. And he said, yo, bring a truck. And I went upstate and I brought an SUV. And he was like, John, bring a truck. <laughs> And I came back with a truck and he opened up the fucking enormous garage door and there was sacks of laundry, maybe 15 or 20 feet high, oh, literally wow. Wow. every garment in the entire production. And when I was looking at that, all I saw again, was just giant money bags. <laughs> um, yeah. And that order, I think we made um, 12 to 15,000 and that was enough for me to buy my first whip and just kind of keep the motion going because after that he was like yo there's a new account in town if you get them you're going to be okay for a long time that was boardwalk empire and then mm. after that law and order person of interest white collar major spider-man 2 ninja turtle spike lee mike tyson barclay center um <laughs> the we, list goes on <laughs> yeah but let me ask you this because you all right you sold it for a million dollars and I, I heard you said that you sold it because you wasn't passionate yep. but my thing is you got a nice thing going you're making a lot of money if you're not passionate, why not just have somebody else run it and just do something else? Because like, it's not it's not really that simple. I don't believe in that in that. I don't believe in that. Um I believe that you're either running things with a, a tremendous energy and looking to grow 
or you're slowly declining. Mm. And now you can have a system in place that makes a decline very gradual so you can cash out a lot over time. But uh, I really think it's a myth that you can have this, you know, business kind of on, you know, you can have biz a little small business kind of on that you've set up and you have a, you deploy a manager. Um, but um, that was not the way that my business was set up. My mm -hmm. business was very high touch, specifically with the film industry, very high touch clientele. Yeah. It is not a hands off like it's a job. We need you at three. Like it's incredibly intense. And the only person who would deal with that shit is the owner. Um, and so how, how many staff did you have at the, at the peak? 15, 15 people, 15 people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we had a creative director. I was very creative with my hiring. I had a branding guy. And what cleaners do you guys know that has a full time branding person? And he taught me I credit to Omesh Persaud is from the Bronx, Indian guy. Um, he taught me my initial appreciation for font, font, typography, spacing, brand, touch points, you know, with the product. Um, and so anyway, yeah, I sold that shit, man. I sold it because it was a headache. Uh, and frankly, the macro environment was not one that I wanted to, uh, I didn't want to be in this business anymore because I saw a very bleak future for the business. Um, because that was 2014, which is when I sold it, December 3rd, 2014. That was the time when it was not clear if it would be Uber or Lyft. I don't know if you guys remember those days, mm, yeah. but it was all about the Uber for everything. It was Uber for this, Uber for that, funding, yeah. funding, funding. And I was like, damn, I'm just looking at the picture. And I was already going toe to toe with these people. And I'm like, damn, I just don't see this fair and well. Like, I, it just is clear to me that people are subsidizing their operations with ridiculous amounts of venture capital. At that point, I didn't have confidence in my ability to raise venture capital. And, you know, I was like, dude, I got something decent that I built. Someone's willing to pay for it. Let me just sell this shit. Million dollars. And and, and I could. Um, that was a gross. That was not the net uh, ticket price. Okay. Um, but that was like, um, to me, the power of narrative and the power of confidence. And like, I started something in my own mind. I started this shit at the desk yeah. with my own mind. Put some brand behind it, bells and whistles, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Grew it, and a more experienced competitor and businessman, whom I mean, this guy was really one of the smartest guys I know, a Mexican guy. Math, he was a, a mathematician by trade, mm. um, and he saw value in it, and I sold it, man. And um, at twenty one, at twenty one, yes, wow. sir. So, all right, you just talked about VC. So this is going to bring us to our next segment. We're going to talk about venture capital. Let's That's what it. you're doing now, and this is something that I'm really interested in because. Yep. We haven't really covered this in depth at all. So okay, cool. yeah, we're gonna talk about that next. All right, so now we're gonna talk about VCs. So we talked about VCs before previously. We had a ex NFL player, shout out to Mike Brown, and yeah. he's doing um equity crowdfunding. And he he went to Duke. He used to work in Silicon Valley. So he he's Silicon. Like, Silicon Valley. Yeah. And um We know. So yeah, he told <laughs> us about the whole VC process and all that. But like I said, one of the good things about Earn Your Leisure is that it's kinda turned into like a college course in sorts, mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, a lot of these things you hear about, but nobody really knows the inner right. workings of it. And right, right. from his perspective, he told us on the outside mm -hmm. in, but you actually have a VC firm. Yes. So this is, we're just getting the apple sauce from the apple orchard. Yeah. Yes, sir. So this is dope. So, all right. How did, all right. So we got to tell a story on this. How did you, how did you come into the venture capital world? Okay. Um, so after I sold my business, um, 
I, at that time, was very passionate about building some kind of startup community in Harlem. So I did that. Um, and it initially started as like a little meetup that we call Co-Found Harlem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just kind of turned into, you know, at that point, because I sold the business, I had a lot more bandwidth and creativity and runway, and I wanted to make some shit happen. So we added a little business model behind it. It was not a great one, but it turned into an incubator of sorts. I convinced a developer to give me space for free. By the way, this is a thing. You can, I learned, I learned a lot through Co-Found Harlem because it was a non-for-profit that focused on economic development, so improving the area. And so that that got me to interface with politics. So Co-Found, yeah. because people might not be familiar, Co-Found yep. Harlem was an initiative that you started to help small businesses in Harlem get capital, right? Yes, it was the first incubator in Harlem. And so that kind of project, I stepped up a little bit in my thinking. I got a little bit more macro because I, I was going from just operating a, a business now I'm helping other people operate. So I'm interfacing with politics because I discovered, oh shit, politicians care about the area getting better. Mm-hmm. But more important than politicians, politicians have power, but real estate developers have a very long-term interest in the area, I discovered. Mm-hmm. Longer term than politicians because politics are just like looking for the quick election. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These motherfuckers are here 40, 50 years. And so I pitched a developer to give me free space and you know it was a very bold thing and he was like why would i do that and i was like well because i'm gonna incubate businesses and the only thing i'm gonna ask for them is that they stay in harlem yeah i think that's one of the things you said right that the businesses had to put their headquarters in harlem yes for, for four years for, and it ended up it started as four ended up being two okay and so anyway so yeah so we were able to get free space because they were like all right bet like we want the the value of our proper our main business res- residences to go up so they had some retail that was open so all right bet cool take that so yeah, so we got the space, we got mentors, we made a little bit of buzz, we got companies applying, all of a sudden I'm running an incubator, it's a not-for-profit incubator. I'm raising money through grants and fun, you know, and sponsors and shit like that. And I inadvertently got into running kind of an events business. We had a little bit of an event, that's when I really started dipping my toe into content and building a community type business. And then eventually one of my biggest donors, um, who I didn't know. His name is David Rose. He's a um, he's a very prolific angel investor. He's one of the most active in New York City. He pretty much was like, yo, I come from a big real estate family. You might not know that, but I want you to do what you did for Co-Found Harlem for us and learn the investment side. Can you describe what an angel funder? Yes, angel investor, so, so an angel investor invests in startups with their own money. Mm. A VC, a venture capitalist, invests in startups with other people's money. Mm-hmm. And that's really the key distinction. And so David Rose is a prolific angel and he wanted me to he wanted to recruit me and help him run a fund as a real estate technology fund. So we invested in a real estate technology, not physical stuff, property management software. And I told Dave, I was like, yo, I don't really know any of this. He's like, John, we know real estate. You bring your energy. So anyway, fast forward a year. We learned, you know, we made some good investments um, and like I sourced the deals on my own. Like I did everything on my own because they were too busy to really give me guidance. But the most important thing I learned had nothing to do with the job itself. It had to do with like the family had generational wealth. Mm-hmm. Like they controlled thou- dozens of thousands of units in New York City. I mean, truly a legacy family, man. I mean, when you go to you know, Dizzy's Club, that's that's the Rose, you know, the Rose Hall. If you go to the American Museum of Natural History, that's the Rose Planetarium. Like, 
they're embedded in what it means to be New York. Mr. Rose, as David's father, large in part funded Martin Luther King Jr.'s original Million Man March in 1963. Hmm. I mean, we're talking about a legacy family. And so at that point, man, I really caught the bug. I was like, yo, I got to go do this for us. So I went back uptown. I met, I met the fellas whom, whom are now my partners at HCP. They had their own background. They come from a more academic background and they were fortunate to be exposed to finance early. You know, I learned this shit through being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. They learned this through like, there are pathways and programs in place. There's one called SEO and there's one called MLT. These are placement programs specifically for people of color to break into investment banking. That's only in New York or? This is nationwide, I want to say. Okay. Um, and and yeah, these brothers actually all, you know, they the group was bigger back then. They all met in these placement programs, mm -hmm. all working for banks, Goldman, Bank of America, shit like that. And they decided like, yo, let's put our bread to work. So that, you know, they started doing that and they kept hearing about me. Because that's one thing. If you are top of mind at whatever you do, you're going to get more opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, eventually they came on my radar. We met and we started investing together. And one thing to clarify, and this is really important because, you know, people who want to get into VC, like they think if you don't have a million dollars, you can't do it. But in reality, our first few checks were like 10 or 15 K by the way, split between like five guys. Mm. So it was like, it was like literally two or three K each. So that's what you, you all came to the table, like 3000 a piece. Yes. Okay. That's enough. Right now. Now, look, if you can't make slash save enough to make two or three K, you're not ready. But <laughs> if you're not bullshitting and you're serious about your shit, you can stack two K, two or three K. So five of you come up with, with 3000, you got 15. We, we put together 15. And then right? what's, what's the vision now? Like, and then, and then it's like, all right, bet. Now, where do we put it? Right, you know, <laughs> and so the quality of your deal flow increases over time, but at first, you know, we caught word of a local cafe that was looking for money. Cool, we put a little bit of bread into that. Got to experience what it was like to be invested in small business. We caught word of a dental practice, a guy that was buying a dental practice looking for money. Boom, you know, because you start communicating, yo, I'm looking for businesses to invest in. You do get deal flow back. You put it out and you start getting deal flow back. We caught word of a venture company. And so we invested in a couple of different, a few different asset classes. All with the, fifth, the initial 15? No. Nope. we're grossing as we go? Nope. So it was like, we did capital calls. Okay. Which is like, hey, we found a deal. It's time to put bread up. So that's a capital call. And you hit the whole group. Between all the five of you? There was like six. Six of you? Okay. So there like, was like six. All right. So now it's like, okay, we put the first 15, but and we, you, we yeah. need to put five more in each. Yeah. I mean, five was a lot for me at the time, but like. You know, it was like, hey, we found a deal. Who can put what okay. was really the question. Okay. And like, if I was more liquid at that time and really liked the deal, I might have put four. And then we might have had a partner who was like, oh, I can only put one right now. And so it would vary. And so, yeah, over time, you know, the interesting thing, and this is credit to my partners at Harlem Capital, is like, we always treated 25K like it was 25 million. And now... We've closed on twenty five million. So you know, so so it's just crazy because you gotta treat the baby step with as much respect as the end goal. So how did you? All right, how did that work out as far as the first, the early like look, look at even the first deal that you had, the dentist office or the bakery. 
you gave him like what, like five thousand dollars, something like that, or yeah. So so the way the actual mechanics, because I know EYL likes to get into that, <laughs> is uh, we, so the way you do it is you form an LLC. Okay. Okay, and e so each of the partners become members in that LLC. You name that shit, whatever you want. And um, yeah, so it ends up being what we call an SPV, which is a special purpose vehicle, which is pretty much fancy talk for saying like, hey, anytime we invest in said company, it's going to come through this entity, mm -hmm. right? And the LLC is a fascinating legal entity because it's a flow through entity. So it's like you become members in that and like you on the company, let's say we invest in, you know, the cafe on that company's docs, on the formation documents for that company, they're gonna see Harlem Capital Partners LLC on there. But then, you know, if we make a profit or a loss, the profits and or losses from that entity flows through to each of the individual partners. So it's really just like a, like a shield. Mm -hmm. It's like a step, step away, it's removed. So anyway, you make an LLC, you invite whomever, for anyone listening who wants to create a little syndicate, that's what you call it, an angel syndicate. You invite homies that you think are serious. You join the LLC. You brand it, come up with a cool name. And then you start communicating it to the world at large that you're looking to invest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then you look for deal flow. And that's, you know, that's how it works. And so we would put 10K and then I think we ended up doing like six deals as angels. Hmm. 10, 15, 20 if it was a hot deal. Mm -hmm. 10 if I was low on cash. And like, man, it's not really about, we haven't seen a dollar, by the way, from any of the angel investments we've made. Mm -hmm. In fact, we've lost money. Okay. Yeah. The cafe closed down. You know, we've seen some distributions from the dental practice, but not really. A lot of stuff doesn't work out according yeah, yeah, to plan. Yeah. But the most important thing is being on the ride. Yeah. Like, I don't listen to anyone in business who hasn't lost more money than me. Like, you gotta get skin in the game. I can't take you serious if you don't have skin in the game. Yeah. Like, you, you, like you guys got cameras, you got yeah. mics. We lost a lot of money. If, yeah, <laughs> if this lot, shit wouldn't have worked pictures. out, yeah. <laughs> a lot of like, like lot you know, you got the focus right. You got the MacBook, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you guys are putting bread in. You put bread up to buy the shirts. Yes. You're putting bread in. That's right. That's 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 and, and so anyway, with the angel investing thing, it's a lot more important to get in the game. And you will not know. This is why at the beginning you asked me, like, yo, have I got any book tips? And I said, I don't really fuck with books because you will not know what asset class you like until you invest in it. I thought I loved investing in small business. And then I discovered I really don't like that shit. Because when I was meeting with the business owners, we were talking about napkins and forks. And I'm like, dude, I, you know, I want to talk about scale and, you know, like, this just wasn't wasn't for me. I discovered that I like real estate a lot. I love real estate. I wouldn't have known that unless I jumped in. So I'm a really big fan of jumping in. And if you can't jump in at a big scale, you jump in at a small scale. Just jump in. So how how does that work when it's six of you, right? As far as decisions, uh, is it like majority, or if it's like you know what you don't like it, you're just not part of this deal? Yeah. So it has changed over time. So when when we were in Angel Syndicate, it was like, hey, are you interested? Some folks might have said no. Um, but also, you know, going back to this business is really a people first thing, you know, is also respect for your partners because your partner might find a good deal and, you know, might have gotten in a good rapport with that founder. And then two months in, it's time to invest. And like, you know, I want to support the fact that my partner is excited about this deal and I, I'm going to put up, I'm not going to step up big. I might put up a thousand mm -hmm. and be like, yo, all right, cool. You know, put that in the deal. 
Conversely, when it's a hot deal, when it's, by the way, hot deals, you're not, they're not pitching you. You're pitching them mm. to get in. Mm -hmm. Hot deals are oversubscribed, meaning a, a company typically will raise a finite amount of capital. It's what we call a round at a fixed valuation. Okay. So they'll say, Hey, I'm raising $1.5 million at an $8 million valuation, i.e. they're giving away 20% of the company. And then if it's a hot deal, you get good funds in investing. And so like a fund, uh, you know, is like uh, for anyone maybe doesn't know is like, you know, entrepreneurs who go out there and raise money from the market, you know, in, in institutions, endowments, shit like that. And, you know, they have a great brand name. And over time, especially from Silicon Valley, you've had prestige funds emerge. These are funds that have proven track record that they know how to spot winners. Sequoia, Benchmark, Kleiner Perkins. Whenever you see them on the cap table, the cap table is short for capitalization table, which is the page on your company's documents that shows who owns what. Mm -hmm. And so the cap table, you'll see a list and it'll say, Nas invested 50K, owns 2%. That's um, Queensbridge Ventures, right? Yeah. yeah, and so he also invests as an angel. You know, such and such invested this. So the cap table. So we have this thing in VC, you want to be on cap tables. You know, like a lot of motherfuckers talking shit, but I never see you on the cap table. You know, <laughs> you might be at the club table, but I don't see you at the cap table. They have the crap table. Yeah, right, right, right. right. So, so uh, that's good. That is pretty you good. on the crap table, you ain't on the cap table. All right. So, so, um, so anyway, um, yeah, when you see a marquee fund, meaning a top fund on the cap table, it's a competitive deal. That founder has options. And we were fortunate a couple of times to squeeze into a very competitive deal. And in those deals, when a deal is hot, you want to make sure you, as much as it costs you, I don't care if you got to pawn your fucking watch, get in the deal in as big of a way as you can. You might lose that money, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. But when you can get a good amount of exposure into that deal you know those deals that end up doing 10 20 x i'm i'm gonna ask you a question for some good before, deals I just had, before i forget this the, the reason the reason why i like this podcast is that we get to interview people and nobody like the last guest that we had was talking about stock shout out to wall street trapper and he was saying how he it excites him and like you i could see like it's like you seen paid in full before yeah okay so so with mitch he was like i love the game yeah, Obviously, yeah, yeah. he was talking about illegal game, but right. business is like a it's like a competitive sport. Yep. So it's like I, that's what I really loved. Like even with Steve Jobs when he said that it's the process that really excites him, not even actually sure. getting yeah. there. It's just it's not the, the journey. journey. And it's like for people, I really want everybody to understand. Even like with the podcast, it's like it's ups and downs, but it's an exciting ride. For sure. And for I could sure, tell the, I could see the excitement when you're telling a story, and it's like for people that have never been entrepreneurs, I just encourage just to have that feeling. Yeah, it's, man. It's, it's, it's like a natural high. Yeah. The feeling is everything, bro. But I wanted to ask you, so how do you, all right, so you started as angel investors and you said that didn't really work out for you guys for the most part. It wasn't profitable. Yeah, right? I mean, so so one thing to know is like when you make an angel investment, the yield curve on it, is, meaning the amount of time with which you're expected to make anything back, if at all, is typically seven to nine years because that's the average life cycle of a business. And so when I say we haven't made any money, it's, it's like- still a chance. Just, uh, for sure. Right. Right. And, and we're in some companies that we're expecting to make some money back. Um, but like, you qu I quickly found out, like it's funny, cause you know, uh, 
I'm making, you know, we're making deals. And every time we make a deal, we, in, we announce that deal. And so my social was blowing up. Yo, you're an angel investor. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> and then I'm like, fuck, I'm not seeing any money. <laughs> like, it, it just literally feels like you're just, like, your money's just disappearing. Because it goes to work. And then what happens for anyone who doesn't know how you make money in venture, you only make money in venture on a liquidation event, which is the company is sold. You do not, contrary to small business investing, if you invest in an ice cream shop, barber shop, restaurant, whatever, you're yielding profits. So you have a profit split. So because a, a example would be like when uh, Nas or in his, his firm invests in Ring and then Ring gets bought by Amazon. Or PillPack. Correct. Right. Yeah. PillPack. Um, so, so if you invest in a restaurant, you're making quarterly dividends. Yeah. You get cash flows. In venture, because you're typically reinvesting profits in the business, because growth and profits are inversely correlated. If you want to grow, you got to sacrifice profits. And so it's a very different kind of investing game. So you don't invest in a startup with the pretense that you're going to get uh, uh, profits. You're, you would be hurting that business. Mm -hmm. So the trick is jumping in and getting in early at a nice valuation. On average, we invest in businesses um, Along, the businesses that are coming from the Midwest are on average valued between four to six million in venture, and businesses along the coast are valued between eight to 10 million. Mm. So now 80% of M&A, which is mergers and acquisitions, are happening right now between the 150 to $200 million price point. Mm. Like Gimlet Media got acquired for, by, for 200 million by Spotify or whatever. If I would've gotten into Gimlet Media when they were worth 10 million, you do the math on that. You get in at 10, they get sold at 200, Whoop, you know, you got a 20X. So what money did you put into that deal? You know, if you put in 100, that'll tell you what you net at the, at the yeah. back end. So anyway, I'm just clarifying how you actually make money in venture. Mm -hmm. You get in at the sweet spot, and then that business grows. And if you're fortunate, it gets acquired, and then you net. What's, what, what, what's the difference between the valuation of... Uh, cities that are inland and the ones against the coast? That's a great question. Um, and the real, the real reason that businesses are priced differently based on geographies yeah. is due to cost of living. Okay. So like businesses make, you might make more as an individual in New York. Um, and so as a result, employees are more expensive, offices are worth more. And so, and there's also more capital in that market. And right. so you can usually justify a higher price point. Whereas I love investing in businesses from the Midwest because they're reasonably priced. In fact, they say, this is a nugget, VCs say that the actual valuation, the true valuation of a business is the Midwest valuation. And then when you go out to the coast, you get inflated. Because mm. when you're in Silicon Valley, those motherfuckers will pay any price for any business. And so we actually rarely invest, in, we haven't invested in a single business from the Valley because by the time they come to us, they're like, oh yeah, we're worth $20 million. I'm like, show me your revenue. They got 100K revenue. I ain't paying 20 million <laughs> for 100K in revenue. So like there's one thing to know as well is like there's actual different investment climates among the coasts. The West Coast is very like, yo, we're looking to scale by any means. And the East Coast is a little bit more like conservative. We're looking for revenue and a little bit more modest growth. Um, but revenue. How did you go from being angels to be having like a VC? That's the question, right? So and we get this a lot because people will say, yo, I want to break into VC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a number of ways. You either um, work at a venture firm. Good luck breaking into one. They're very exclusive. Or like the path that we took, we started as angels. And eventually, once you have enough of a track record, 
you can you can go out to the market as a whole and say hey here's my thesis like here's my idea and it could be like our shit is around investing in diver, you know diverse founders like we invest in women and minorities but that doesn't have to be your thesis your thesis could be around sports your mm. thesis could be around music yo i want to create a fund that invests in you know music companies sports companies uh sewage you name it and the the true test of whether you can raise a fund or not is if you can convince enough people to believe in your shit. And what I found out raising money is there's a lot of motherfuckers with money out there. <laughs> For yeah, yeah, bro. You, 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 said that, you said that uh, the founding, the goal people is to, to invest in a thousand companies over the next 20 years, right? Yes, sir. So that would mean like 50 companies. Is that the goal? Like you're doing 50 companies? We're doing, year, a, just... we're doing a thousand founders over 20 years. Okay. So like if we invest in one company that has four founders, we're counting that as four. Okay. Um, but yeah, the way our fund model is structured right now, we're looking at doing, uh, you know, 30 deals out of this first fund. Um, and then, you know, it'll accelerate. So it's not very linear. It's like our first fund might be 25 to 40 million. Our second fund is going to be a hundred million. Then quarter, you know, then quarter billion, and then a billion. You know, we're you know we're thinking pretty big. So, so it's all relationships. People, yeah. you build relationships with people, and they invest in your fund. Yep, that's right. The same way that entrepreneurs are asking for money, we're doing the same shit. Okay. And so the biggest misconception, like when we close our fund and we make the announcement, it, I think it's gonna make a very big splash because we're gonna be like you know young of color, and we, I think we we're gonna raise a considerable amount. Um, People are gonna look at the headline and automatically think that we're it's you. It's, you're, it's, you're not, right. it's not our bread. <laughs> okay. That's, so that's, full disclosure, that's not a, our bread. Well, that's yeah. important to know. It's, it's very important, important to know. Because a lot of times, people, the angel and the VC, they kind of get that mix, and they think if you have a VC firm, all of that money is your money that yeah. you're putting up. Yeah. And if you want, so I'll just break this down quickly. The the fund model. All right. This is how you make money when you cross over from angel to VC. You get paid on what's called the two and twenty. That's the fee structure. So the two refers to your management fee. So whatever the total size of your fund is, this is why you're incentivized to go for a big fund. Whatever the total size of that fund is, 2% of that annually is what you make as your fee. So on a $25 million fund, 2% of that is 500 grand. So you get 500 grand every year to pay for salary, office, travel, everything. Now, if you know with a team of four an office and stuff like that like you know you might make 100 g's on salary like that's nice but you're not going to get rich off of that yeah. you're not meant to get rich off of that mm -hmm. the lp there's two kinds of partners in a fund there's the gp the general partner which is the partner that's putting in the work and then there's the lps a limited partner it's the person who's investing so your lps do not want you to get rich off the fees because then you would never work you get rich on the other side i remember i said it's two and twenty two is the management fee the 20 is what we call the carry, and the carry is your share of the profits. So now, because we can because we can get in a little detail, I'll just explain this. Typically, you as the GP, if you set out to go raise a fund, your commitment to the fund, you you put up one percent of the total fund. Okay? So if if my partners and I are set out to raise as an example 20 million. 1% of that is 200,000. So we have to come up with 200 G's across, you know, the four of us. Okay, bet. Now, but here's a mind blowing shit. Remember, I said the 20 is that refers to your share of the profits, which is 20%. So 
we're making 20% of the profits on 20 million. So it's just like, you know, I guess it might be complicated. It's like ingrained in me now. So it's not that complicated to me now, but like in a nutshell, you're, if you can put together 200 G's, it's buying you a ticket to get the profits on 20 million. Like, so that's 2 million. Right? Well, it depends on how much money you make with the 20 okay, million. Okay, yeah. And that's the incentive. Okay. So it's like, can you make this 20 million and turn it into 100 million? Mm. If you do, you get 20% of that. Okay. You get 20 million. 20 million. Yeah. You know, so it's like, it gets complicated, but like. How can people, if they want to, um, we're going to move on to the next segment, but I want to. So if people are interested in like pitching their business, is it like Shark Tank? How realistic is Shark Tank? Shark Tank is to angel investing. Um, what Indiana Jones is to archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, so they're not coming in front of you and you're not. Nah. So how do they, how do no they way. pitch? No disrespect to Indiana Jones. Shout out to Indiana Jones, man. I was a Harrison legend. Ford's a legend. Harrison Ford. <laughs> Nothing like that shit. Harrison Ford. Yeah. So yeah, how uh, do the, they pitch The that? real way is like people send in a pitch deck and we, you know, and then, you know, if the pitch deck looks good, then we'll, we'll sign a part. There's different levels of a deal screen. So, you know, pitch deck looks good. If not, then we'll, we'll we pass pretty quick. And we, we see a thousand deals a year. We invest in 10 deals a year. So we're talking about a 1% investment rate. So if we see a hot deal, one partner's jumping on the phone with that founder. Then that partner reports back with about a page of notes to the rest of the team. Yo, cool. And then if there's interest, then another partner will jump in as many partners as are interested. Then we jump in with the full, with the full team. We try and get a fuller team situation and we learn more. We have interns. So then our interns might go and do market research and analyze what we can expect to make. And then interest grows. And usually you have every partner leads their own deal at the fund. So it's all about like, yo, all right, what deals, what deals am I getting? Mm-hmm. versus Brandon versus Jerry versus Henri. We're all looking for our own deals. And to your question about voting, we have a we have a conviction over consensus philosophy. Like it's not like all of us have to agree. It's like is someone really worked up about this deal and can you get people excited? Yeah. You're judging off the passion of, of one of your partners for or sure. Okay. And their ability to defend the deal and we'll we'll test it. We'll heat check each other yeah. and grill each other. Like, yo, I don't know if this deal is going to make it. Like, like I tried to get a media deal through and I couldn't get it through. It got shut down because my partners were like, yo, you know, the media climate is really hairy right now. You know, Vice and Buzzfeed and, and Refinery29, you know, they're not doing too well and they're the big dogs. So how the small dogs and, and you just, it's a mental game. Mm. And if you can get people excited, then we close the deal and we say, all right, bet we're going to invest X amount. And then we just wire them the money and then we put prayers up. You know? <laughs> yeah. There you have it. Ladies and gentlemen, 101, 103, 104, and 105. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> was it right there. Adventure capital and angel investment. We're going to our last segment. All right. So in the last segment, we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to our heart. <sighs> Absolutely. Is uh media, right? Yes, sir. So uh, I heard you talk um, previously and you, you, you have interesting views about media. And you still have you still have your podcast? Yeah, I have a I, yeah I've, I've done a number of podcasts. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then you you have the show on Vice. Yes, I do. Hustle. 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 Yeah. So all right. So how does that work as far as being on the other side of the coin as far as like because Vice is a huge operation, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like what's the inner workings of that? Like having your own show. Yeah. How did that even come about? 
Yeah. Um, so the interesting, so the, the essence of media is communicating who you are, what you do and why you do it in a way that resonates with an end consumer, with another person pretty much on the other side of that screen. And like, that's a, just a very unique opportunity that we have specific to this generation. Mm-hmm. And like at the essence of having a show and all those other stuff, like, and even earn your leisure, like at the essence of it is like, people are picking out what you're putting down. Like they fuck with what you're saying and what your guests say and all those other stuff. And that's really the most important part, man. And, and once you're able to over time, if you say consistent, if you look at my earliest videos, man, really bad, you know, cheesy, stiff. And like, you know, some, I have people that reach out to me that are trying to get into video now, but they're comparing their day one shit to like my stuff now. It's like, (laughs) it's not going to be the same, but if you're willing to deal with the discomfort of being new at this for enough period of time, and you get through some of the kinks and you learn to express yourself on this specific medium, whatever that is, it could be writing like my boy, Julian Mitchell writes for Forbes and beats. It could be podcasting. It could be video, whichever the medium, once you have gone through the reps and get good at expressing yourself in that medium, then what happens is you start building a community and audience of people who fuck with you, you know? And then once you have that, which is like messenger, message and audience and that virtuous cycle opens up the door for a lot and so the first big media project that i was invited to do was a podcast that i hosted for ebay um, that was produced by a company called gimlet media and that like that project like i got paid like 50 g's to do that and like i didn't even know that you could get paid to do some shit that I would do for free. <laughs> if so you do something e- good, get paid for it. eBay was like, yo, we have millions of sellers. And Gimlet's like, yo, we have millions of listeners. And, you know, they, so they'd cut a deal between themselves. eBay was looking to produce a podcast. Gimlet, that's their business producing podcast. Boom. That's a branded podcast, meaning it's brought to you by eBay. Yeah. And then what happens is they look for hosts. And so, you know, because I was already out there doing my thing, my name came up in the conversation. And that's why I really believe if you're not out there doing your thing with the fucking phone, then you're never going to get to a bigger screen. Mm. So start with whatever screen you got. Yeah. And so I was fortunate to come with conversation. I met with the lady. She really liked me. Um, and yeah. And, um, and I got, boom, I got the opportunity to host my first bigger scale branded production. And that was, and you know, Gimlet is very special the way they do their podcast. Like we had four producers, we had a creative director. We, I mean, it was like a big production. I was traveling. Yeah, it sounds and, like it. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't like a regular thing, but, but, um, so that was my first like thing. Okay. Boom. We did two seasons of that. And then, you know, my speaking started taking off because it's all a virtuous cycle. It all mm. feeds each other. Mm. Once you have a lot of listeners, you're being requested in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. So then I started doing speaking first for free. And then I found out you could get paid for it. <laughs> so the very next time someone said, yo, you want to speak? I said, instead of just saying yes, I said, what's your budget? You know, it's and an then, important question. What's right. Your budget? <laughs> That's an important and then question. These days I don't ask for the budget. I just say my price. But those days I was like, what's your budget? And she was like a thousand bucks. I was like, Cool, I'll take it. <laughs> so like Done. I got paid a G and then I, I tried to go for a G again, but you don't always get it. So then I got 200 bucks, 400, 
350, 750,000, 2Gs, back to one, yeah. you know, <laughs> just like the reps, the motions, like, okay, cool. And, you know, when you're first doing something, whether it's VC, whether it's media, whether it's real estate, you want to prioritize in the beginning for reps. So I'm doing whatever it is for free to start. It doesn't matter to me. I just want to get the reps in. Mm. And I started getting better and better. And so speaking started picking up. I got signed by an agent. To anyone listening, yes, there is a profession that exists where it's like a salesperson whose sole job is to sell you and you don't pay them anything. They just make a commission. The catch is they only take people on that they feel like they can sell. And so I found an agent who was like, yo, you know, you got a lot of stuff going for you. Let me represent they you. They found you or you found them? Um, I had so- a literary agent. Someone's like, yo, you know, you should do a book deal. And then I asked her if she knew any speaking agents, okay. introduced me. And the first time I signed to an agent, my, my rate for speaking got up to like 3,500. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, bet. You know, it was higher than my 1,000 I was charging, but they take 20%. Mm-hmm. 20% of uh, 3,500 is like 700 bucks. So I was netting like 2,800. Mm-hmm. All right, cool, I could do and it was just whatever they brought me. So it was really net net. So anyway, so here I have this podcast is being listened to by people is feeding my speaking business. And every time I went and spoke, I noticed people weren't recording their shit. I'm like, dude, you're leaving out the main value record it. So you can turn it into small business content so you can feed it to social so you can get requested to more places and it just it all feeds each other. So that's what I was really doing. I had the chance to do another podcast for the Washington post similar sized deal. Um, and so just over time, it's all feeding each other. I'm speaking a lot. I'm capturing it. A lot of cats don't want to capture their shit because they don't want to pay for a video guy to travel with them. Mm-hmm. I'll, take a, I'll take a haircut all day. <laughs> yeah, I'll pay my video guy, whatever I got to pay him and the flight and the lodge. These days, my agent knows that I always travel with video. So now that shit gets covered for me which yeah. is a, and I just pay my, my guy for the craft. But... So as you can see, as you grow in the game, you get efficiencies dialed in. Mm-hmm. But when you start, you gotta come out out of pocket. So I'm eating into my own profits, sometimes not making any money, sometimes costing me money to pay for the video guy, but the video and capturing is essential to the craft because that is what allows that particular engagement to live beyond that engagement. And there are some companies throwing massive conferences with no fucking, no one capturing anything. If it's not recorded, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And so anyway, so I'm capturing these talks, communicating it. I'm one of the only kind of younger cats like doing it this way. And so then that picks up. And next thing you know, man, the phone turned into a vlog, turned into the podcast, turned into someone hitting me up and saying, hey, you want to do a TV show? And and then it happened. So the TV show, uh, Mark Samuelson. Marcus Samuelson, yep. Yeah, top chef. Harlem ties too. Yep. How how did I mean? Did you know him or did you meet him? And I guess Alicia Keys is also the uh, executive producer of it as well, right? Yes, she is. Did you know them prior? Have a relationship or you no. met them in, during the process? Um, so Mark, shout out to Marcus Samuelson, man, good brother. One of my original mentors, an Italian guy, he told me he's like, yo, and this is you know, I don't know if you guys heard me say like you got to be top five and whatever you do, you got to come up top of mind. If not then you're missing out. You're leaving opportunities on the table. That mentor taught me that. And he told me, he's like, you got to be top five in Harlem if you're going to build in Harlem. And right now, number one in Harlem is Marcus Hammerson. So you got to go and build with him. Crazy to think years later, he's executive producer of my show. (laughs) Now we're making money together. But at that point in time, I was like, fuck, all right, I got to get to Marcus. 
and I was emailing him stuff like that. And eventually, pull up to the restaurant. Yep, pull up <laughs> to the restaurant. Eventually, he invited me by. We had coffee. He liked me a lot, and uh, I interviewed him. Similar to this, you know, I like using interviews as a way to build relationships with people. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Now you guys know all the players. Um, <laughs> Fact. Um, and then, um, yeah, man, and and so then I had someone approach me about doing the show. And the cool thing about packaging a show is that there's junior talent and there's senior talent. You usually will have the junior talent kind of be on camera, which is what I was in, in this production. And then you find bigger names and attach them to the product, to the project. In this case, it was Marcus Samuelson. Marcus, who signed to WME, that's Alicia's same agency. Mm. We lobbed it up there. We're like, yo, she might be interested. She was interested. Wow. Came on to the project. And now it's four of us, Marcus, Alicia, me, and then Beth, the original creator of the show. And, you know, then we had two legs to stand on. And what, what you do is you develop what's called a sizzle reel, which is like a two-minute preview of the show. Where people go wrong in TV is they spend way too much money on the pilot. They'll drop like 10, 15, 20 Gs. I don't care how much money you spend on the pilot. Your pilot's going to be fucking terrible your first go around because you don't even know what you're making. And so my, my producer, the EP of the show, she actually was like, an, a, she's a very seasoned TV executive. She made Pimp My Ride. Mm-hmm. And she told me, she's like, John, that show bought me my first house. <laughs> yeah, so Pimp she's, My Ride was the shit back then. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, she made a real hit show. Yeah. And so as a result, she knew, hey, let's not spend any money on the sizzle reel. Let's actually just rip existing footage, splice it together. What we did was she camped out outside of Alicia's trailer one day after outside of an event and she got Alicia's voiceover on the sizzle. So that gave us enough credibility. And with that two minute sizzle with Alicia's VO on it, voiceover, we were able to go to market. And like one thing about selling a TV show is not enough to know the companies. You got to know the specific buyers within that companies because there's buying departments whose sole job is to look for things to put on their cable roster, on their lineup. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, we went, BET was interested, Netflix, we had some interest, Oxygen, we had some interest, but Vice emerged as very interesting. They called us in, like it was very clear from the beginning that they were very, very interested. And what they did was, what happens with a series is they bought the pilot. So they actually funded, instead of us shooting our own pilot, this is why I said, hold off, yeah. use a sizzle reel, use that as a selling mechanism, then a network will buy the pilot, they'll fund the pilot. So now your pilot is coming from the specifications of the network and they're telling you how they want to see it. And the cool thing about this deal is after you shoot the pilot, they have four months to pick it up. If they pick it up, great. You're, you know, you got picked up. You're going to season one. If they don't pick it up, you get the show back and then you get to sell it, it to another network with a pilot that was made on someone else's dime. Mm. No one knows that shit. Like, I mean, t- like experienced TV execs know that. But I was blessed because Beth gave me the insight. Um, and, and I told her, I was like, hey, look, I'm going to be, I guess, on-camera talent. But, like, you know I'm a fucking businessman. And you know, like, I want to do this only if you'll lift the curtains and give me a real honest look at, like, what this whole process is. Budgeting, developing the concept, creative, producing, you know. And, you know, she was like, all right, let's do it. If we're fortunate to get on a ride because 0.01% of all pilots get picked up. Mm-hmm. And we defied the odds we got picked up. And it was a crazy ride, bro. It was a 22-person crew. 
I mean, it was a it's a multi million dollar budget show. Yeah. Um, and so we, how does how does that work? So like when you get picked up after the pilot, is it per episode or are you getting paid for the season? Um, so um, so full disclosure, I you know was just on camera talent um, for season one um, because you got to start somewhere. Um, so the way that the mechanics work because I got insight is a production company gets paid. Um, a per episode fee that production company will say hey it's gonna cost us 300 grand 400 grand 200 grand 100 grand whatever it is to make the show you quote it out the network agrees and then the production company typically keeps like 10% of the budget is their fee and then they get to make whatever this you know whatever money they don't spend um, so like if if it's a hundred thousand dollars per episode but they made it for 70 they keep 30 plus their fee so anyway that's how the actual mechanics work but just like you're going to find a common theme here. You're not really going to make a lot of money in your first real estate deal. You're not really going to make a lot of money in your first angel deal or your first speaking gig or season one. You use season one as a way to get it going. Now, Beth, who sold the show to Vice, can now turn around to another network and sell another concept a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And then we can get picked up season two and so forth. Romeo Brown said that. Yeah, right. Remember, um, we had an actor when we was in L.A. And Episodes, he, uh, 17. he said that. He said exactly what you said. He's an actor. He's not a producer of a show. But he was saying that even for like an actor, your first year or two years is like nothing. Then now you can negotiate. like a, like a It's like sports. Yep. Like your first contract is yeah. a little bit of money. And now you're in a position, okay, I performed. You, you know my work ethic. You see this, da, 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 da. Now you, the second deal is like it, where it's you just like your resume. And the interesting thing is, I went to the negotiating table with illusion. The illusions of grandeur. I was like, "Yo, <laughs> I want twenty G's an episode." Because I had heard that that's what you get paid. <laughs> Take it or leave it. And they were like, "Yo, um, remove a couple zero. You know, like, <laughs> and so like, but I was like, "Yo, how can that be?" Because I had a I had a reference where I was making more per episode on the podcasting, and I realized actually. That that is the case. Net TV has so much leverage because they know that once you're on air, you're gonna make a lot of money, and so you actually get paid very little to be on unscripted, i.e., reality television, mm. because they know that you're gonna make money on the exposure. Like love and hip hop. Yeah, like most of the characters. Yeah. Well, people. We're not even they, they they are characters. We on know a few. Yeah. We know some of them, yeah. Shout out to Love and Hip Hop. So, so that's how it works. So anyone looking to make, t you know, again, TV. Well, let me ask you this before we before we end this. Um, all right, you're you're an entrepreneur, right? The, the 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 way this is going, does it make sense for somebody to go that traditional route or to go an independent route, YouTube and like what's what's your thoughts on that? I think right now it's a great question. I think right now October twenty fifth. 2019 that the current climate right now there's a lot of money to be made in branded projects um branded projects that is a brand like modelo corona nike adidas cadillac, cadillac whatever cadillac. like all <laughs> these <say>. brands <laughs> are looking for ways to reach consumers remember we started this media segment by me giving the basic truth and that was for a reason Messenger, message, audience. It could be on the phone, it could be on the vlog, podcast, writing, TV, doesn't matter. But the reality is that these days, brands are looking for new and elevated ways to reach audiences. And the way they're doing that is via smaller content creators mm. like us. Mm. 
And if you could position yourself the right way, you can position yourself to extract some of those dollars because those budgets are flowing around. I'm fortunate to see them. They're flowing around. Brands are spending quarter million dollars for one event, one night. Quarter million dollars for an event. You know, 500,000 on a podcast, literally a podcast season. A few million on a show. You know, these, these brands have budgets. Now, here's the thing. I don't know how much longer this is going to last. Hmm. I'm looking around like, yo, what the fuck? Like, there's money in everything these days. Yo, the other day I got a, I got a, a you know, product from a company called Poopery, which is like you spray this spray in the toilet before you take shit. And like, and like when I got paid to take a shit, I was like, yo, you, there is literally nothing that you can't get paid for. So, so with the poopery, right? So with that in mind, I'm like, all right. One thing I know is that there's a lot of budget flowing around for creators. Another thing I know is that nothing lasts forever. So the third thing I know is I'm going to try and make as much of this bread while it's around. Get to the bag. This is a market reality that's specific to our generation. There are companies spending, you know, incredible amounts of bread to create content, to build communities, to reach people. So with that being said, are you going to put in the effort to build the community? Um, and if you do and you become top five, you will get hit up for opportunities to get paid to do what you love. It's a lot. <laughs> John, man, that was powerful, man. Thank you. Thank you for coming, yeah, man. We no appreciate doubt. that. Something that we've really been looking forward to. And uh, I think every segment, it was, I learned. Yeah, I learned something sure, every, every single you know, segment. You know, as sure. you're talking, I'm just thinking like, yo, this guy's 26 years old. Word, word. Like yeah. those experiences that you had sound like a lifetime, sound like a biopic. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking like word. he's doing that at 22, 23, 20, like what? More. Like, we were trying to figure you, out, yo, are we going to Carabana? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know Shout what I'm saying? Out like, to Toronto, my man. gosh. <laughs> like, this is great. Like, nah, nah, thank you, man. Thank you, thank you. Wow, keep nah, up, nah, keep up the great nah, work, not bro. worthy of that, but thank you, man. Uh, you know, just a kid that started doing early. The earlier you start doing, exactly. you know, the more time you get under your belt. But thank you guys, man. It was great to hop on this platform. Right, sure, uh, and I, I hope that you guys' audience fucks with it. And if they do, we can do a second installment soon. Yeah, for sure, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Anything you want to um, tell the people? Or make them nah, aware man, just like I love you guys, man, for real, even if we haven't met. Um, because, damn, man, like, Proximity is everything, man. You can't be what you can't see. Um, and I appreciate each of us playing our part, whether it's consuming the content and then taking action on that content or whether it's distributing the content or sharing the message, whatever the, the your role in this whole thing is. I really do think we're living in some special times, bro. Like we're living in the same way Dizzy and Bird knew each other when they were playing jazz and the same way Nas and Hove like knew each other coming up. Like I really think entrepreneurship or whatever is the new zeitgeist. And uh, I'm just, you know, honored to be part of this whole space. Uh, for sure. We're honored to have you. Troy, any housekeeping items? Yeah, yeah. We just want to give a big shout out to everybody on Patreon.com. That is our Proud to Pay program. Um, you already know how that works. There's five tiers. Uh, and it allows the podcast to do a lot of things, travel, uh, put on events. Like we said, we, we got something coming for D.C. Um, and we got some new members. Yeah. Uh, Curvins, uh, shout out to you, Al, uh, Swin, Andrew, Jeff, and shout out to Rex. He's a uh, tier five member. So shout out to him. And, uh, and everybody supporting the merch on EarnYourLeisure.com. Patreon is the community. That's oh, a big one. It's, it's yeah, a, we, it's, we, it's we, we, we said that we're going to do something when we get to 100. 
we have like 96 right now. So we're going to do nice. something when we get to 100 nice. uh, patrons. Shout yeah, out to you. Sure. And book tip of the week is Steve Jobs autobiography. Um, I actually read that book. It was actually a really good book, um, inspirational, and it kind of outlines his whole journey in business. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, once again, thank you guys for rocking with us. We'll see you next week. Peace. Peace. Peace, earners. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.